We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I want to do something here with you that I started last week looking at, and you wonder why you would do it at, at Christmas time. It's a very good reason. It is called the, the, um, the theodicy. And if you remember, what I said was the word theodicy means theodike. It means God under judgment. Whenever people ask questions about Christianity, they're always the same questions. How can the Bible be true when it's written by men? What about other religions? Uh, why would God create a hell? Um, what about earnest Buddhists and Hindus and guys like that? Why is Christ the only way? What about evolution and creation? How do they, you know, can they fit in the same deal? They can't. And so they want to know why. But all of those questions are academic. Academically, how can the Bible be true? Academically, why would God make a hell? Um, academically, what about other religions? How does it fit doctrinally into what you believe? But when you ask a question about the theodicy, about God and evil, why would a loving God allow evil? Why would a loving God punish in hell? Why are there hurricanes and earthquakes and stillborn children and cancer, all of these evils in our world. As Baudelaire, the atheist said, if there is a God, he is my devil to make something as hard as this world. And so when people ask about the theodicy, it's unlike any other major questions about the Bible. It's asked not, of, not out of enigma, it's asked out of pain. My, I remember my oldest cousin, Eunice Ray, was, she had diabetes and passed away. And before she did, they had to take off her arm and her leg below the knee. And I went and visited her in the, in the hospital. And just, and you know, she was in her 40s. And uh, we just sat and talked. And I remember she looked at me as a, you know, her cousin, the pastor, and held up this hand and this leg and said, why? Why? Have we all asked that? I raised these kind of kids. These did great. I got this one rogue. We, we raised them the same. Why this? Uh, cancer. You know, what my mother taught Sunday school, and yet she got cancer in her late 30s. How did that happen? How did we lose our 15-year-old boy to leukemia? Uh, I had a buddy that his father was a pilot for American. His father... Uh, went through his retirement, worked all the time. We called him captain. And at his retirement party, he stood up and spoke and had a stroke and uh, knocked out his ability to, to speak cogently. He could speak and then all of a sudden he'd take off on something. And he, then he died. It was inoperable. He works all that time working hard as a, uh, a layman at Northwest Bible in Dallas. And then at his retirement party, he has something that is fatal. And you kind of, you know, wonder if God is playing dice with the universe. And so these questions are asked out of pain. All of us at some point have wondered why. That's why whenever you go through tough times, what do you open your Bible to? What book? Psalms. Because 
it's written about a man quite often in pain and of going through it. Job about pain. The great guys of the Bible, no one gets out alive. No one gets out without pain. Man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as natural as sparks go up, humans are going to run into pain. Would anyone agree with me here? Yeah, none of us gets out alive. And so, with that bit of encouragement, what else do we have for Christmas? Okay. I showed you last week three things. I showed you about the nature of evil, biblically. That the Bible sees evil as true evil. Revolt against God, the good, and his word. And thus, it is anti-God. It is anti-life. It is anti-reality. It deceives you with pleasure. But evil, uh, to do evil, is going uh, in over the outstakes, so to speak. It will tear you up if you try to do it. It's counter-truth. And the Bible recognizes it's not from an evil God. It is not a part of God's nature. It is not a dual force to good that opposes God. Satan is not as evil and as eternal as God is good and eternal. It's a, Satan is allowed to fall underneath God for his bidding. They're not equal. It's not maya of Hinduism. That's just an illusion, but it's really not. Or even in an atheist perspective, you have to interpret evil as not evil, but a biological, psychological, chemical malfunction that causes injurious and painful actions to other hominids. Okay, that's the way you see it. It's biological, but it's not really, uh, you know, we're trying to find now, maybe there's a, an evil gene in humans. You ever know anybody that maybe you think is a candidate for that? And if we could just centrifuge that gene out of them, that maybe we could get evil out of people. If we could give you an evil vaccination and we could shut down evil. And so that's what you have to do with evil if you're an atheist. You suck it down into the machine of nature. The Bible says, no, it's real evil and a rebellion against God. What's the shortest verse in the New Testament? Jesus wept. Where did he weep at a funeral? That's bad. But then he did something about it. It's bad. Who allowed Lazarus to die? Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is sick. This is not a sickness unto death, but unto the glory of God. Let's wait another day until he's dead. And then they go there. What does Martha say? If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What's Mary say? If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What's the crowd say? Could not the man who healed the blind have saved this man from death? We don't understand how you can do all things. You knew this happened and you let it happen. We don't understand it. Jesus wept. But then it says that he was moved within himself, which is the word used in the New Testament for a horse snorting as it goes into battle. He ran to the battle line, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. That is the perfect picture of evil. 
I allow it. I could stop it. I will use it for a greater purpose. I'm with you. I'm not a deist God. I'm with you in pain. I weep. I weep it for what you go through. But I can do something about it. I'll charge into it like David will to Goliath, and I will fix this thing. And so that's the great text on the theodicy, Lazarus. Eliezer, God is his help. Okay. And so that's the nature of evil. Uh, the origin of evil, it, because it's not eternal, because it's not part of God, it's not an evil God, it's the one thing that has an origin, in a sense, outside of God. It's, it, excuse me, it's the bastard of creation. It's the illegitimate. E, the origin of evil is that it was always a logical possibility. If God is good, then there is, adversely to him, there is evil. Uh, Augustine called evil an ontological parasite. Ontology is the study of being. Where you have the being of God that is good, you now necessarily have an ontological parasite. That evil now is a concept. Whenever you made beings that could choose, angels and men, both called sons of God, evil goes from a possibility, a logical possibility to a potential possibility. Now it can happen. With the fall of Satan, evil became a reality. With the temptation of man, now it became a human reality and brought about what is called the fall or the curse, where we have death, children brought forth in pain, have y'all discovered that they're fallen? You haven't? That's because you're single. Okay. You're going to have a child and realize that's a fallen individual. That a woman will desire her husband to be rebellious. A man will rule her to be abusive. And so it affects the kids. It affects the father, the mother. Nature brings forth thorns and thistles, subjected to futility. Uh, from dust you came... To dust you shall return. It brings death. So why is there a messed up world? You ready? You got to know this. Always somebody asks you that. The Bible says the world we have is not the world we had. But the world we have is not the world that we shall have. Are you with me? Something happened. Something wrong happened that necessarily was a possibility in making human beings or angelic beings that could choose. And so that is why we have death and all of that stuff, but God is still in charge. And that goes back to number three, the purpose of evil. There is a reason that God allowed it. I was in a class one time in a philosophy class, and I was the representative fundy, all right, the sacrificial lamb, all right. And a kid raised his hand, front row, and he said, God knew when he created there would be evil. Yes. God knew that there would be death and hell and Satan and all the rest. Yes. He knew there would be Nazism, communism, and the Holocaust. Yes. Why would God create doing that? I said, that's a very good question. I said, I've got an answer for you. No problem. I said, you're not going to like it. He said, lay it on me. And I wrote up on the blackboard. You remember blackboards? Chalk. Okay. 
and I wrote G-L-O-R-Y, glory. I said the word glory is from the Greek word doxa, and it means an opinion. Doxazo, to glorify, means that you radically change your opinion of somebody. When you read how evil came and how God used it to bring about a greater good in the giving of Jesus Christ, to, to raise man to a greater height, to demonstrate his wrath and to demonstrate his goodness, evil brings out all of the greatness of God. And in human beings, it brings out necessary attributes that have to be there within humans. Evil serves God's purpose. It goes like this. Uh, this Jesus uh, was crucified according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified him by the hands of wicked men. Now think about that. You crucified by wicked hands a man predestined to occur. And so, did man have a responsibility? Yes. Is God sovereign? Yes. You meant it for evil, Genesis 5 to 20, but God meant it for good. And so, this the allowance of evil exemplifies whose God is. It exemplifies who man is. Remember my last week, my Truman Show illustration for you? Truman, do you want to break free of the artificial world where you'll never be hurt into a world that you can be hurt? The world out there where you can be hurt is a real world. And you're not going to make it unless you're heroic and great. You can coast here and get your three squares and we'll take care of you. It's not a real world, but you're not going to be hurt. Which do you want? Truman said, I want true man. I want that world. Even if there's pain, I want to have to be heroic. Even if there is pain in marriage. How many times have you been to a wedding service and you hear him make those vows and you go, <laughs> you know, you ain't done nothing yet. You ain't done nothing. Uh, you're going to find out who this guy is. Whenever you do a baby dedication, you go, <laughs> they don't know who they gave birth to. <laughs> Time is going to tell. And we're going to find out who's a good parent. And we're going to find out who's a worthy mate. But we're going to find out here in a little. We can't tell it with all these white tuxes and all these dresses and all these bridesmaids and stuff and all this singing. We're going to find out about you know, 5 a.m. when you got the flu and you need someone to come hold your head. Let's move on right here. We're about to find out. And so that's what evil does. It highlights God and it will elevate man from being in the garden, from being in the eternal state. We have evil to think and the redemption of God it goes like this. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Well, Let's go now to something new. We've looked at the nature, the origin, the purpose of evil, that God was wise in what he allowed. How about the persistence? Why doesn't God get rid of it now? Why doesn't he get rid of it? You ever watch CNN? Why don't you get rid of this? 
Why don't you kill these various people right here and let us move on? Well, uh, if you are going to get rid of evil now, you have to get rid of man. You have to make him tr um, Truman under Ed Harris. He can't be a real man. Now, I'm not going to make it to where if you go to curse, I'll all of a sudden strike your vocal cords. If you go into a road rage and roll the window down, I'll just leave it right there. All right. I won't let you be able to do what you would do out that window. If you're going to, to strike somebody, I'm going to stop your hand when it goes forward. If you go to shoot somebody, I'm going to make a Nerf ball come out. He's not going to do that. If you go to stab somebody, I'm going to turn this into a rubber a knife. No, when I give you freedom, it's not sovereign freedom. God is sovereign. But I'm going to give you real freedom. One guy said it's like this. Man is in an aquarium. A fish can't be a bird. He has to be a fish. Man has to be what God has made him and what the fall has made him. But it's a real fish. And that fish really can swim and navigate around that aquarium. And so man can really be a real man. And you can use evil to bring about evil and pain. And God is not going to, uh, if you go to commit that act, he's probably not going to stop it. Because that's the privilege of being in the image of God, that you get to act. And so God would have to eliminate man. He's not going to do that. Or how about this? A guy said to me one time, why doesn't God get rid of evil now? And I said, great, we'll start with you. <laughs> no, he don't want to get rid of all evil, just you. He wants to be okay. If God goes to, has to get rid of evil, he has to get rid of, he has to end history as we know it. And he's not going to do that. He also would have to get rid of his plan. God has a plan. Let me show you something. Look in your Bible at 2 Peter Chapter 3, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter. And in 2nd Peter, chapter 3, in verse 3, Peter says, Boys, here's what's coming. That in the last days, the last days biblically is the time from the death of Jesus throughout the church age, through the tribulation period and the second coming. It's the last chance man has to be saved. These are the last days. They've been going on now for 20 centuries. That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. The word mocking in Greek means the nose, the mukter. And it means to... Uh, Lift up your nose in the face of God and haughtiness. Mockers are going to come and they're going to say, where is this promise of his coming? All this stuff about the second coming and judgment, where is it? For ever since the fathers, meaning the church fathers, the fathers of the church, ever since they all died and fell asleep, all continues just as it did from the beginning of creation. It looks like it's just cause, effect, universe of uh, just continuity. 
that there's no intervention of God. It looks like a closed system of natural causes. We don't see any creation, incarnation, rebirth, resurrection. It just looks like it continues like it always did. Well, he says, when they say this, they main, in, in other words, the problem they have is time. Where's the sign of his coming? Time rolls on. If he, and here's the assumption, the fact that God hasn't judged means that God will not judge. If he will, hasn't, then he obviously will not. Peter says, no, in verse 5, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heaven existed. That's creation. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. That is the spirit moving over the face of the deep and causing the land to rise up out of the water and bring about civilization. And then through which the world at that time was destroyed, flooded with water. He said, it escapes your notice that God created and he destroyed it. That he's already done this, destroyed a world. And in verse seven, by his word, that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. God destroyed then, and God has given a promise now that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Anytime you buy something, new car, new house, put a sticker out there that says reserved for fire. Okay? It's going to end someday. And in verse 7, it is kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. God will someday deal with evil men, but he will not deal with it in an impetuous way. He will deal with it in a divine, sovereign way that he announces, prophesies, and in the book of Revelation, he'll even do time travel. And he'll let John go to that day and write down what he sees, and you can see it through John's eyes like you were there. I'm going to show it to you. And in verse 8, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Don't you be like these guys and realize that God is not subject to time. With the Lord, one day is not a short time. It's a thousand years. And a thousand years is not a long time. It's one day. And so you can't hold God to this standard of time and say, therefore, he doesn't do it because he doesn't act on my timetable. Do you all know how long Israel was in bondage in Egypt? 430 years. What's 430 subtracted from 2022? Steve? <laughs> it's a long time, all right. It's longer than our country's been around. That's how long, and I'm sure that they thought God's finished with Israel, but he's not. He brought them out at the exact time that he said that he would. And in verse Nine, he's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is, what's your word in your Bible? Patient. You know what the word patient means in Greek? Macro, meaning a bunch. Thumia, meaning pain. Patience means that you go through much pain. We get the word passive from it, where you're suffering, that we get the word passion. Patience means that you're putting up with what would stimulate you to wrath. 
God is patient. And then he says, toward you, speaking to the elect. Don't let this fact escape your notice. God is not slow about his promise to judge, but he's patient. He's putting up with stuff. The psalmist says God suffers indignation every day. He is patient toward you. Who's the you? It's the reader, the elect. He is patient toward you, not wishing for any in context of you to perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. How many of the elect of God will be lost? None. Whom he predestined, whom he foreknew, these he also predestined. And whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. God will not lose one. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me, the elect, they will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. And I will raise him on the last day. For I have not come to do my will, but the will of the Father. And his will is this, that all that he has given to me, none shall perish. And so why is Jesus Christ still at the right hand of God? And why has he not come? Answer, because he is saving a people. While I'm up here speaking, are girls being abused? Are people being murdered during this service someplace? Are people in the Ukraine dying? And Putin taking land that ain't his? It's happening. Uh, are women being raped? Yeah. Children being aborted. As I'm speaking, this is happening. Why does God let it go on? Because people are being saved. People are being gathered in. And so God is patient. But in verse 10, the day of the Lord, it will come like a thief. Count on it. There will all of a sudden be the rapture. The tribulation will begin. And in 70 or in uh, seven years, he's back. And there is the judgment of men. And so it will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will melt with intense heat. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? We know in verse 15, that the patience of God is salvation. And so we're wise. We know that God keeps waiting because God has a purpose and his purpose is being fulfilled. And so that is the persistence of sin. God is not always pleased, but God is never perplexed, ever. One time I was at a conference with Dr. Francis Schaefer and a guy asked him the question about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And Schaefer said, they're not two things that oppose each other. They are two things that wonderfully complement. You don't want to see the will of man and the sovereignty of God as things that collide. You want to see they're not equal and opposite. You want to see the culpable choice of man and surrounding it is the sovereignty of God. He was delivered up by the predetermined plan 
and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified him by the hands of wicked men. You did wrong. God is in charge. What was the worst event that has ever happened in human history? Man's crucifixion of his God. Tortured him for six hours and then killed him after a six, uh, six trials that found him innocent. And you killed him. That was the worst event of all time, was the crucifixion. Question, what's the best event of all time? The crucifixion. Depends how you look at it. The brothers of Joseph lied about him, threw him in a pit, then sold him into Egypt. Bad guys. Then broke their daddy's heart for 20 years and lied to him. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. He became the savior of the world and saved Israel after a seven-year time of trial. He saved that nation and became the bread of life to Israel and the world. Sound familiar? Yeah. The, the chosen son that was sent to the death, you thought he was dead, but he's not. He's with the Gentiles, and then he will save the Jews, and they will all be ruled under him. And so God knows what he is about. What did William Cooper write? Uh, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Okay. And so... That is the persistence of sin. Francis Schaeffer said God can let man do whatever he wants and leave nothing to chance. Isn't that good? Well, and let me say as I move on, this is where faith occurs right here. This is not an academic thing for us. How many of you in the last five years have had something happen that was deeply painful. And it wasn't because you necessarily did stupid. It just happened from people around you, outside of you. It happened. And you still don't know why, but you went through it. Anybody? Yeah. Nobody gets out alive. Everybody goes through this. And so this is where you just have to trust God. I remember when I went through that depression. It hit me as I was getting ready to go up and preach the Sunday night service to, to the youth and the college on the Song of Solomon. Can you think of anything more noble than talking to young people about God's view of sex? I should have been given mountains of money just for doing that, you know. I should have had hair grow back on me <laughs> for doing that. And yet, something hit me, and all the life went out of me. And, you know, there's reasons it happened. But it didn't work like I thought it would. And I went through one of the toughest times in my life. I'm so glad now that I went through it. Don't want to ever do it again. But I learned some things about it. I was able to write another book, made some money, bought me a new Dodge Charger. <laughs> Just by going through it. There was a reason for it. Just kidding. No way. I still don't know completely why that happened. But you know what? The, the verse that kept me going was Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. 
the you there in the Greek is plural. It's all you boys, 12. Meaning he can't get to you. He has asked permission to sift you. What that means is to remove the shaft from the wheat, to purify you. But I have prayed for you. He didn't say Satan has demanded permission and I said no. He said, I said yes. And I've prayed for you though. I'm not going to let you go through this alone. I know what's coming. I know where you're going to be. I know where you're going to be. So I'm right here. I'm going to take your hand. And I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. You're not going to run out of gas. I'm going to be right here. And once you have turned, there's going to be a major change in your life. I will use you to strengthen your brothers. I'm going to give you a pulpit where right now you've got a pike put into you. I'm going to make it a pulpit. But you're going to have to trust me, even though you can't see me. You're going to weep bitterly when it's done. But I'm going to make you a better man. Is that a good verse? None of us can say, boy, I better write that for my wife someday. No, we all go through that. Every one of us. And so that's, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, saying, God, you're here. Stay there, read your Bible, and watch Andy Griffith. Okay, and you can make it. All right. Well, the last point is called the elimination of evil. Let's take 15 minutes and we'll conclude on this. How is God going to eliminate evil? Is he going to eliminate evil? Unlike you ever imagined he's going to eliminate it. We're going to put it in a lake of fire, in a black hole where nothing can escape. Satan, his people, the old world, and his followers. We're going to put it in a place so unbelievable that it will make, the Bible says, your ears tingle to know what I'm going to do. You think I'm not going to do anything, but I am. And it will be, you'll raise your hands and say, how can God be so violent when I tell you what I'm about to do? The same God that you wonder why he would let this happen is going to make your ears tingle as to what I'm about to do. Uh, God is going to eliminate evil. And let me give you, I hate numbers. I'm going to give you 12 things though. Number one, the way he eliminates evil is going to be prophesied. He'll say, you'll know when it's coming. As soon as man sinned, one verse later, one breath of air later, God says, I will put enmity, Satan, between your seed, natural man, children of the devil, and her seed. And he, one singular man, male pronoun, will crush your head. A man is going to kill you, Satan, and put you under his feet. And you will wound his heel. A man's going to die killing death. Does that sound like anybody you know that went to the death so he could end death? Yeah. And could cast Satan out. And so it is prophesied. He'll be a man. He will come from Abel, who's going to get killed by Seth. So Seth will, t I'm sorry, who'll get killed by Cain. Seth will take his place. And then he will give birth to Noah, who will give birth to Shem and the Semites, who will give birth to Abraham and the Jews, and Isaac and Jacob and 12 sons. And we're going to take Judah. And from Judah will come a man named Jesse, who will have a boy named David. 
in a city called Bethlehem. And so God says, I'm going to show you a very narrow how I'm going to get rid of evil. It's not going to be government subsidy. It's not going to be education. It's not going to be being, uh, uh, busy. you're always trying to be gluten-free. Okay. I'm going to get rid of it. It's going to be my way. A man's going to die for what you do. Number two, it's going to be a certain way. This man is going to die, and this man is going to rise from the dead. So is he going to be dead or is he going to live? Both. I don't understand. I didn't think you would. He's going to go to a cross and go to a crown. I can't understand that, but it's going to happen. I'm going to eliminate death by death. And number three, it's going to be in a certain time. It's called the last days. When this man dies, he will open up a period where the clock is going to stop. And it's called the church age, ecclesia, the calling out of man. And men are going to come and be delivered from death. And then to a world that refused him, he's going to come back and he's going to judge it. And so it's going to be done in a certain time. And that's going to be, and I quote, at the fullness of the time, Another quote from Hebrews, at the consummation of the ages. So I'm going to finish human history. It's not going to go on and on and on and on. Sermon within a sermon. One of the problems with evolution, among others, is evolution doesn't have a omega point. It's not taking you to where we all become ultimately, you know, these perfect individuals. There's no utopia. All right. It just goes on and on. The Bible ends time as we know it in the glory of God. It's got a, an end point, an omega point. Matter of fact, that's one of Christ's names. I am the alpha and the omega. I started it and I bring it to an end. Genesis, the beginning. Revelation, the end. So God, before Genesis, he is eternal. After Genesis, he has continued eternal, but this little wrinkle in time, if you wanted to give your Bible a name, you could call it wrinkle in time. This little wrinkle in time is going to invade the presence of God with the physical universe and beings that are like God, but not God. And once we emerge on the other side of Revelation 22, we're going to go into eternity again, but God will allow in his presence forever creatures to share his glory. Try that on. Uh, number four, it's going to be done by a person. He is called the Messiah or the chosen one. Uh, he is going to be God. He is going to be man, but he is going to be perfect man. He is going to lay aside all of his privileges and live just like one of us. And in him, there will be no sin. He will avoid the fall of Adam by being virgin born. He is going to die. He is going to rise. He is going to go away and sit. He is going to bring things underneath his feet. The first being a group of people. Then he will return and rule and all things will be under his feet. So it's a certain man, certain time, and a certain event that will occur. And number five, there will be proof. What will the proof be? God hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. Uh... Having, oh, how does he put it? God hath commanded men everywhere to repent. Uh, having fixed a day 
in which he will judge the world through a man, having given proof and that he has raised him from the dead. We can't find his body. He died and he rose. That's why John begins his epistle with what was from the beginning, what we touched, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we beheld its glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And so he's going to rise from the dead. And then it will begin, number six, a purpose. That God so loved the world that he will give his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I will save you. I will begin a period of saving men. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we will save a people. And then this will end in another event. It is called the second coming. And in between the first and the second is a mystery that is called the church, where we're going to move from Jewish to Gentile. If Spock, does anybody know who I'm talking about? Yeah. When Spock is reading his Bible for the first time with his Vulcan, that's why it was great. The, the way they did Star Wars. You got a little time? Okay. Do the Cowboys play today? Oh, we go all day. Okay. Uh, you have Spock that is the Vulcan, that is pure reason. The humans are emotional. Spock is, also, is just pure reason. And if he were reading his Bible, he would say, Captain, Genesis, Exodus, this is all Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. Jewish writings, Jewish prophets, Jewish history. And then here comes Matthew, the gospel to the Jews. And they kill him. And then we have Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks, John to the whole world. Then we have the Acts of the Apostles. They start in Jerusalem and they end in Rome. And then we have books written to these people from the book of Romans, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi. That's Fort Hood, okay? Philippi, uh, Thessalonica. Then you got Timothy and Titus to the next generation. It's all Gentile until in chapter four, you hear Jesus say, come up here. And then all of a sudden judgment begins and the church is not mentioned. It's the Jew, the 144,000. They're in, the, in his sights again, Jew, Gentile, Jew. And so there will be another event. Starts with the removal of the church. And then the wrath to the world, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the Old Testament bodies of the faithful, the resurrection of the tribulation saints who have died, and then the judgment of the present world as to whether they have believed in his coming or whether they have taken the mark of the beast. And he will say, depart to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But as for the rest of you, come into the kingdom prepared for the foundation of the world. And Christ will then go to what is called the rule of a thousand years. At this point, the Bible becomes very shortened because it's almost like it's so beyond us that he won't take a lot of time. I'll rule for a thousand years. Methuselah made it 900 some odd. Nobody made it a thousand. I'll rule for a thousand years and I'll rule with three people. Old Testament saints that'll be raised from the dead. New Testament saints that'll raised at the rapture. We have to be removed from that final judgment because it's the wrath of God. And then there will be the tribulation saints that lived through the tribulation and died. They will be raised. And so these three 
Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation will rule with Christ like adopted family members for a thousand years. When Israel will be central, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Men will beat their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, study war no more, and there will be peace. Can a lot of children be born from those who go into the kingdom? And there may not be 2,500 people. The Bible says that in that day, man will be like the gold of Ophir. Jesus said, unless God had intervened, no flesh would be saved. So you may be surprised how few people are there to judge when Christ returns. And so after the judgment, we may not, it'll be like the ark getting off with just representatives of each species. They'll be representatives of different nations. You think you can have a lot of babies for a thousand years? Yeah, they're called millennials. Yeah. And at the end of that time, Satan is bound for a thousand years. And now the question is, Having Christ rule personally in glory, read Zechariah 14, rule upon all of the world for a thousand years, it says Satan will be released to tempt the nations. Every period of human history has a test. In the garden, will they obey me? They didn't. After the garden, you sacrifice and you do what is right. They wouldn't obey. God destroyed the world and gave that which always makes things better, government, okay? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. How did that work? At the Tower of Babel, the nations separate and you begin to see war and idols. So now God separates the Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the sons, and gave them promises. Did they obey? They murdered their brother and lied to their daddy and fell into idolatry. So now we're going to take them out and give them law at Sinai. Now they'll obey God. Took them 30 days and they had an orgy. And then we're going to judge them in the wilderness, take the next guys in. And now Israel will look at the Old Testament history and they're going to fall away. He sends the prophets, they kill them. He sends his son and they kill him slower and more painful than everybody. And so man will not obey. But that evil thing opened up the door of salvation. No one can say that man thought it up because it was using evil to do a good thing. The only person that knew who was going on was God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's it. And so now he has commanded the world to repent. He's given us the Bible, the sovereignty of God with Israel, the church, the radical good that the Western world, of the exporting of Judaism to the entire world and the Bible has seen. How has the world done for 2,000 years? Are we repenting? We are more evil now than we were. And so, we will now return, judge the world, have a kingdom. Now, will man obey during the kingdom when he is tested? Surely he will. Innocence, conscience, government, promises, fathers, law, grace. Man will not obey. Even under the kingdom, he will not obey. And he will rebel, fire comes down, consumes them. If you're God, what are you going to do? You've done everything you can do. The only thing you can do is our last point right here. It's called the great white throne. You make the entire universe decompose. If you take one electron and split it off into another molecule, you can release energy and you have what's called Hiroshima. 
What happens when you cause the entire physical universe to release its energy? You want to get your camera there and see it when it happens. Okay. The elements will melt with intense heat and the earth and all of its works will be burned up. It's gone in a primordial soup. Okay. Because we're going to remake it. And then all you see is a great white throne. It's like heaven comes in the presence of men. And then it says the dead are raised, all of the wicked dead. And they stand before the great white throne. The books are opened and we look at their sin. Their only salvation is the Lamb's book of life. And we open it, their name written in it. They rebelled against the truth, rebelled against conscience, rebelled against natural revelation. Then they rebelled against the very word of God. And they depart into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his messengers. It's a family reunion. It's called the lake of fire. You're gone. And then God has nothing but his faithful from all of the ages. They are raised from the dead. They have completely shared in all of the inheritance of Christ, even to their rule with him. They even have become like him, the adopted. And so he takes, that's what the, the empty tomb was. It's a womb where the, the pangs of death, it says, were removed. And now we have passed through it into life. And so now, whenever you have a, a bride and you're a rich guy and you're going to show her your house, you carry her and you say, don't look, keep your eyes closed. You're about to open them and see something no human has ever seen. No angel has ever seen, and it's yours. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I've gone to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to surround it with new heavens and a new earth. What will it look like? We don't know. It's in the mind of God, and it's waiting for you. Like a rich guy in his palace for his bride, okay? Like Sleeping Beauty. Who was a girl who fell asleep, had a little, came awake? Was that Sleeping Beauty or... That was Snow White. Who had the elves? Yeah, there's no elves in my theology right here. Yeah. You got a sleeping beauty, got a Prince Charming, raised her up, and now we're going to the castle. Okay. And she opens her eyes, and it's Revelation 21 and 22. New heavens and a new earth. What's it look like? The Bible doesn't tell you. It tickles your fancy, but it doesn't show you. To, to know it, you have to go on into Revelation 23. There is no Revelation 23. I know it. You have to enter into the novel. This is the only book that you get to meet the author and you enter into the novel as a player. When you read Huck Finn, you don't get to go to Mississippi, you know. But when you read the Bible, you go into the novel and so he will show us what he has prepared for us. And at that point, evil is gone completely, never to be seen. We'll talk about it in ancient glorified memories. Steve, you and I will be sitting under a tree, eating whatever you eat under the tree. I'll say, Steve, you remember evil? Wait a minute. Yeah. Way back, yeah. We, we, want, we will not call the former things to mind. And we will serve him. And that's where you have eternity before Genesis, after Revelation, eternity again. 
There's a wrinkle in time that is called time and space and the glory of God. And he uses evil to bring about a greater good. Only a God can do that. Uh, and the funny thing is that as you, as you read your Bible and you finish, you finish on the heels of a warning. The Bible leaves you a warning and it's given you that warning for 20 centuries. I'm coming back. I have commanded men everywhere to repent and I'm not going to take your life quickly. I'm going to let you go through life and see it all take place. And I'm going to bring an end to it. He has given us that for 20 centuries, actually 35 centuries, because the law of God came with its promises in 1500 BC. And so man has had 3,500 years to contemplate on that. How have we done? How have we done? We have failed miserably. At last, it is proven that God is love. He is good. And so... That is what the Bible has to say about evil. In a sense, the entire Bible is a treatment of the theodicy, the judgment of God. Evil starts in Genesis 3, it ends in Revelation 22, and in between you see the activity of God in man and in our lives. Father in heaven, all of us face times that we say, why, O Lord, dost thou make me look on iniquity? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Only Christ could say that with truthfulness. You will not forsake us because you forsook him. And we thank you. And we don't understand everything but you have given us an answer for evil that is more than any human being has the ability to digest. You have it all under control. As we get older and our earthly coil fails, as uh, in this earthly tent we groan, we thank you that we have a, a home prepared for us by God himself. And you have chosen to do something from the foundation of the world that will work its way out page by page. And we got included in that. And we get to be participants. And someday... We will be recipients. Thank you. And I pray if there's a man or a woman here and the rains are beginning to fall and the clouds are gathering, they would see that open door of the ark and they could respond because only family will survive. And we'll ask this in Christ's name. Amen.